me read to us from God's Word. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the life. I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Is it just me? Or or sometimes when we read a passage in the Bible or a section of the Bible, we sort of realise how far our culture has come from its Judeo-Christian roots. How things have progressed and diverted. So sometimes there are phrases and concepts and ideas that if we were to chat to our friends about perhaps who weren't Christians, or even if we're here this evening and we wouldn't call ourselves Christians, that then we find these phrases and ideas very confusing and very worrying. It's a different language, a different framework from the people around us. And just at times we get glimpses of the distance between the Bible's way of putting things, or the worldview, the framework of the Lord, and the world as it stands. You realise you're swimming against the current significantly, the paradoxical nature of the kingdom of God. It's it's seeing through the eyes of faith rather than through natural human eyes. It's it's seeing how that framework has diverted from what the Bible says and what the world thinks. I think you get something of that in this letter from Jesus to Smyrna. And at the start, I want to be honest and say, I think this is pretty hard, surprising stuff. It's a letter that perhaps makes us feel uncomfortable. I think we'll see that as we work our way through it. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, um, we got into chapter 2 of Revelation and we looked at the, the church in Ephesus. If you were here at the start of the year, we're going to rewind a bit, we were in chapter 1 of Revelation um, and we saw, uh, through these letters, we saw that they are specific, they are for particular churches in a particular period, a particular place, at a particular time writing into specific locations, to specific people, contexts, and yet there's a sense in which they're universal. There are seven churches that he writes to. It's as if he's saying, this is a message for church. Seven is the idea of completion, perfection. So he's saying, this is a message for the global, worldwide, multi-generational church as well. I think we'll see that week by week. We'll see there's a specificity to the letter, but also a, a universality as it applies to us. So do have a look down at um, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. And as with last week, you see there is a recipient and there is an address as he begins this letter. Um, the recipient being the, the angel or the messenger of the church in Smyrna. That's probably a leader there. It may be the postman who delivered the letter. I think probably it's the leader or pastor or one of the leadership. And the address is the church in Smyrna. Just to try and get our bearings slightly, I promised last time we'd have a map. Um, And here we are. So Smyrna is, there we go, as you can see there, so we were in Ephesus last time and we have gone up 
and we'll go up again and then we'll go back down and we'll think about that in weeks to come why we're doing that. But you can probably see if, you, if you're a fan of geography, we're modern day Turkey. It's, it's actually modern Izmir in Turkey, 35 miles up the coast from Ephesus. And it's much smaller than Ephesus. Ephesus, we said, was cosmopolitan. There was lots going on. It was a sort of the gateway to the area. And we don't know when the church was founded in Smyrna. We do know the city was a very loyal Roman centre. There were a variety of religions going on there, centres of worship. Um, I'm told it was the first city to erect a temple to the goddess Roma. In AD 26, they built a temple to Tiberius, who was the Roman emperor at the time. So we know there was, there was Roman god worship there. There were uh, emperor worship as well. There was a Jewish community in Smyrna. Um, and we know they were in good standing with the Roman authorities because they contributed money to the city. As well as that, we know it was a centre for sports and for culture. It claimed to be the birthplace of Homer, who was a, um, a poet at the time, a bit of a local hero. He's, you could find his head on the Smyrnian coins, apparently. But as with last time, the introduction of Jesus about himself, picks up ideas and phrases from chapter 1, and we'll be there in a bit. But it also, the way he introduces himself is particularly relevant for the context of Smyrna. And we'll see some of that in a bit as well. So he says, these are the words of him, at verse 8, who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. So have a glance back with me to go to the page before, 1, 2, 3, 3. And you'll see they're picking up ideas from chapter 1, at verse 4 and 5. Um, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So what he does each time is he ties a phrase from chapter 1 with the introduction and that's how Jesus describes himself. What's he saying? He's saying he is the eternal one. He is the sovereign one over history. He is the one who rules. But he's the one who's conquered sin. He's defeated death. He's disarmed the devil. Satan has no authority now, no power over Jesus' people. He can't accuse anymore. And that's always of relevance, of course. But why particularly for Smyrna? Why this church at this time? Well, I think verse 9 gives us a little bit of a glimpse into that. Verse 9, chapter 2, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who, th- who say they're Jews and are not. They're a synagogue of Satan. So do you see, he describes them, they, they are afflicted and they are poor. But as well as that, they're facing this slander from the Jewish authorities, the Jewish community. Now what's going on there? Well we don't exactly know but the commentators and historians make some pretty good guesses and I'm fairly convinced so let me try and give you a bit of the background to work out why those two things are tied together. Why affliction and poverty are tied with slander from the local Jewish community. What we do know is in the early days in the first half of the first century or so the Christian faith enjoyed a level of protection and provision under the umbrella of Judaism. So initially we're seeing something of an, off, an off, offshoot, a sect of Judaism, which meant it enjoyed some of the privileges of Judaism as well. It means they were tolerated. It means that Christians weren't forced, like the Jews, Christians weren't forced to worship Caesar as God. They, they could sacrifice in honour of emperors and rulers, but not as gods. 
And yet when Nero came to power, so persecution began, and so new religions were, were hounded, were not tolerated. And the story goes that all too often, Jewish communities were all too happy to let the authorities know that, that Christians, that followers of Jesus, were not an offshoot of Judaism. They, they snitched on them, the story goes. People aren't too sure why that happens. But it seems that Jews became motivated to inform the authorities that these Christians were not part of them. Maybe it was from jealousy. Maybe they were Gentile God-fearers who were converting. Maybe it's from disgust because they heard that Christians distorted the Jewish law and offered an easy way of salvation, cheap grace. Maybe from heresy they heard of the cross, a criminal dying in nakedness and shame. We don't exactly know why, but something happened, it seems, that meant Jewish folk were no longer happy to be associated with Christians. And so they have affliction and suffering and poverty. Now why poverty? Well again, we touched on a couple of weeks ago. But if you remember, as Christians said no to temple worship, they said, actually, we can't do that anymore. There's a sense in which they are stopping being a part of the sort of economic ecosystem that grew up around the temple at the time. Which means your business would suffer significantly. Maybe as well they weren't prepared to go for some of the dodgy deals that they used to go for. One person says this. It's probable that in their resolve to go straight in business, they renounce shady methods and thereby miss some of the easy profits which went to others less scrupulous than themselves. Now, why all that background? Just a nice sort of historical little interlude there. We're not entirely sure what's going on in Smyrna. But I think that's probably in the right ballpark. That seems to tie into the reality of their situation, that they're being slandered, verse 9, by the Jews. And then they're being imprisoned by the Romans, verse 10 which then ties in with their poverty and their afflictions as well, from verse 9 again. That seems to be something of a situation to try and get us into the context, into the reality of what's going on. Now, if you were here at Morden Road in the summer, we were looking through the Beatitudes, and we, we spent some time at the end of the summer thinking through the, the reality of persecution for brothers and sisters around the world today. And it's a daily reality for many in our wider Christian family, those who are hounded for their faith. This isn't just an idea, this is, this is actually real. Real people, heartbreaking truth as they are hounded because they trust Christ. Think of the context in many Muslim countries, think of the context in many different countries. People falsely accused and punished for, for maybe blaspheming Muhammad when they are simply confessing Christ. Accusations coming at them, at least in human terms, from a different place, but they may well also face afflictions and poverty and imprisonment and death as they stand against the wider culture. They stand against those around them. And what does Jesus say to them? If that really is something of what's going on, that's something of the, the situation, what does he say? He tries to remind them of the reality as he writes to them. He says he knows about their afflictions and their poverty, verse 9. But they are rich. Isn't that striking? It's 
as if he's saying, remember to see your situation through the eyes of faith. Do you, do you trust me in this, friend? Do you trust me that you need to view the world with my currency, says Jesus? And I know it's easy, especially when life is hard, to get duped into thinking that, that you are poor. But don't think as the rest of the world thinks. You might be finding it hard. You might be poorer than you were. You might end up in prison. You might be asking, is this worth it? But Jesus says, you're rich. And I guess if this was it, if this was all there is, if what we could see the very extensive reality, then maybe that's a great question to ask. Is it worth it? Maybe we should, to use the, the image from a couple of weeks ago, maybe we should just turn around and start going back down the stairs, because it's much easier. It's so hard to be a Christian, it's so hard to keep plodding up the stairs and pushing past people and getting in the way. It feels like there's more people coming down and it feels like the stairs are getting steeper. Maybe we should just turn around and head back down the stairs again. But Jesus says, you're rich, this is not all there is. Trust me on this one. I am the first and the last. And you are rich. Why are they rich? They're rich because the gospel of grace makes them spiritually rich. For us and for each and every believer around the world, they have this relationship with God, they have forgiveness, they have reconciliation with him, they are in Christ, they are joined in the heavenly realms, they have every spiritual blessing with him. They have so much. And so they're rich. Remember Paul says to the church in Corinth, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I think that's quite hard to trust that isn't it? Maybe when life is bad for us, when we feel like we're up against it, when we feel like perhaps all the world has turned in on us, when our earthly circumstances seem awful, when we feel poor, Jesus says we're rich. You are rich because Jesus became poor for you. I think that's something of the the idea that he wants them to latch onto and not forget in the midst of all the mess that's going on, in the midst of the hardships, the circumstances, the, the difficulties that frankly have a way of blinding us to those truths when we're in the midst of it. He says, remember you're rich. Because of Jesus, you need to change the way you see the world. We need to change the way we view reality. It's a battle to remember that, isn't it? For honest. When we are in the midst of it, the thick of it, the mess of it. To remember that we are indeed rich. It's a striking description though, isn't it, of the of the Jews as well in verse nine. You think that their persecution of Christians, presumably they think they are faithful, but Ironically, they seem to show themselves that they are not Jews, and yet they are a synagogue of Satan. Again, 
This is the kind of verse where if the world listens in through its framework, we get a bit twitchy. It's very un-PC from Jesus here. In our day of tolerance and listening and open-mindedness, he puts it pretty starkly, doesn't he? There's one implication, it seems to be they are blocking the one true God's one true plan to rescue the world. The other is that the church is actually the true Israel. They think they are, but they're not true people of God. They say they're Jews, but they're not. And with these Western ears, it makes me slightly wince. And yet this kind of stark spiritual clarity is perhaps something that we need now and again to, to wake us up, to remind us of truth. And yes, we need to be sensitive, yes, we need to be gentle, yes, we need to be respectful, yes, we need to engage with people well. But actually Jesus sees the starkness of the reality here for people who block his message, for people who persecute his people. He describes them as a synagogue of Satan. As if you like, that's something of what's happening. That's something of the story so far. What next? Verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. How does he know that? Well, because, verse 8, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. These are the words of the one who is sovereign. These are the, one, the words of the one who knows the end from the beginning. And so what's coming round the corner for them is not a surprise. It's not going to take him by surprise. It's not something he hadn't planned for. But he warns them. He seems to say the persecution is about to escalate, as was common in those days. And so he comforts them and he urges them, don't fear, friends. And we say, don't fear? Jesus, really? Is that fair for you to tell these Christians that? Why not fear? Don't fear prison. Don't fear the fact that the devil is fundamentally behind it all. Verse 10. Why not fear, Jesus? Maybe not fear because he can tell them how long it's going to last and if they are literal ten days which they may well be you can kind of cope with that perhaps if you know how long it's going to be we'll think more about that in a moment why the ten days perhaps maybe don't fear secondly because if we've read chapter one of Revelation we know verse five as we started that he's the firstborn from the dead the ruler of the kings of the earth he loves us and he's freed us from our sins by his blood by his blood means he's defeated the power of Satan. He can no longer accuse us. The devil is a defeated enemy. He's toothless. We don't need to fear him. But then thirdly as well in verse 10, why not fear? Because the test words that he uses there in verse 10, in prison to test you, is actually under God a positive word in the scriptures. It, it's an extraordinary Concepts, a truth that God uses these evil purposes for his glory and yet isn't marred by them. He uses these tests to distinguish genuine believers from 
false believers. He uses these tests to strengthen and to grow and to mature believers. To cause them to flourish and grow in faith. They're they're not to fear. They're to be faithful. Second half of verse 10. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you the victor's crown. Why faithful to death? Well, again, church history seems to tell us that this imprisonment often ended with execution. We can read of a very famous martyrdom in Smyrna. It was the martyrdom of Bishop Polycarp. Any of you church history nerds will know Bishop Polycarp? The jury is out as to whether he would have read this letter. But it's pretty likely. And we're told he was killed. It translates to Saturday 25th of February 155 AD. The games were on. The city was crowded. The shout began. Away with the atheists. As Christians were called. People who didn't worship Caesar. We were the atheists. Let Polycarp be searched for. And they find him. And the officer in charge makes it clear he doesn't want to see Polycarp die. He said, what harm is it to say Caesar is Lord and to offer a sacrifice and to be saved? But Polycarp stood firm because only for him Jesus was Lord. They arrive at the arena. The proconsul gives him a choice. Curse Christ, make a sacrifice to Caesar or die by wild animals or burning. And he says this famously. He says... Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so the story goes that wood was brought for the pyre to burn him own stake. Even the Jews on the Sabbath brought wood. Such was their frenzy to kill him. And soon he was dead. He was counted as one faithful, verse 10b even to the point of death. And so received his victor's crown. As we said though, ten days is an interesting amount of time. Ten days, in part, because it's the number of completeness again, we've seen numbers being important in Revelation so far, but perhaps something, there's an allusion to Daniel chapter 1 there as well. Remember, we said back in the spring, one of the reasons we struggle with Revelation as we read it is we don't know our Bibles that well. And so we jump in at the final chapter and try and work out all that's going on. It doesn't make much sense to us. But if we knew our Bibles a bit better, then I wonder whether we'd understand Revelation a bit better. Did you remember uh, Daniel chapter 1, the testing of Daniel and his friends? Let me read to you from Daniel 1 and verse 12. He says, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing. Sorry, for, for how many days? Ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guards took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Uh, Do you remember the context of Daniel? He and his friends, they will not bow the knee to the king. They will not eat food that's presumably been sacrificed to idols. They will not eat with him because in their culture, eating at the table was a a picture of loyalty, utter loyalty. 
they draw the line, they won't do that, they won't compromise in that. So maybe the parallel with the Christians here in Smyrna, they are being accused rightly of not bowing the knee to idols, of not showing allegiance to the king. So the ten days is a picture of the testing. In both situations, the reward for passing the test was life. In Daniel, it was it was blessing and favour in the courts of Babylon. It was life in the now to one extent. In Smyrna, the life is life forever. That's the victor's crown imagery. Just as Jesus is seen and worshipped as king, ruling and reigning over his people, so his people, even though defeated by earthly powers, are wearing um, earthly crowns, so they will receive the victor's crown forever. And so verse 11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now my problem with verse 11, and again it's that the contrast between what the Bible says and what the world thinks. I think victor, and I've still got the Summer Olympics in my mind. And the victor is the one who who wins. We think victory results fruitfulness. Jesus says victory, resoluteness, faithfulness. Victory, in this context at least, with death, might not look much like a victory. It might look like martyrdom. To be victorious is to be faithful to the end. Which is a challenge for me in all kinds of ways. It's a challenge as I pray for persecuted Christians because I'm struck by the fact that at Smyrna the answer to their problems were not the removal of poverty or of affliction or of hardship or of suffering. They're all good things. They're all legitimate things I take it to pray for for Christians. But in Smyrna their call is for suffering and perseverance. Even to the point of death. It's not that they would be removed from the situation, but that they would be resolute in the situation. Maybe that changes how we pray for each other. Maybe that changes how we pray for persecuted Christians around the world. How easily we see things, we, we pray things through our Western mindset where we want just the comfy life. But in Smyrna it's a question of faithfulness, perseverance, even, even to the point of death. And then life after the victor's crown. I'm challenged as well because I don't think, maybe I'm talking to myself, I don't think I'm a great perseverer. I'm not sure in the West we're that good at persevering. Patience is not something I'm great at. If something is not instantaneous, I don't quite know what to do about it. I wonder whether we need a good dose of sort of stickability. The ability to press on and persevere and keep going. I was reminded recently that as you go through the fruit of the Spirit, the word for patience there, love, joy, peace, patience. In previous translations, it's long-suffering, which means being willing to suffer long. Being steadfast. Stickability. 
And so I look at Smyrna, and I wonder if I was a Christian in Smyrna, would I stuck, really? Might I have been a, a runner? Would I have been prepared to be faithful even to the point of death? Now, of course, the fruit of the Spirit are in part things that the Lord grows in us by His Spirit. But there's the challenge as well for us to live in a way that pleases Him, that is in line with His attitude and values. So it changes the way I think about praying, it changes the way I think about persevering. But for the Christian who does, he says, they will not see the second death. Verse 11. That is, they will not undergo final judgment. I take it because Jesus was judged for them on the cross. We serve one who has conquered death. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. We serve one whom we cannot be separated from as we trust him and his death in our place and his resurrection in our place. So let me finish please with famous verses that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we confess to you that as we we ponder the words of Jesus to this church in Smyrna. We ponder whether we've got so much wrong, whether our way of thinking so easily does not conform with yours. Lord, help us increasingly, please, to see this world, to see our state, our situations, through your eyes and with your values. As we look at Christians who are afflicted or in poverty, being slandered, being imprisoned, help us please to remember that in Christ they are rich. Lord, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that they might keep their eyes fixed on you as they face suffering, as they are persecuted. We pray that they, and we pray that we might be faithful, faithful even to the point of death, because we know the one who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. And Lord, we pray that we might be a people who, who persevere, In a, in a world of instantaneous results, of getting what we want so quickly, 
We pray that we might be a, a people who do little things every day faithfully. Who keep going. And who keep our eyes fixed on you. Lord, we confess that the way the world thinks and the way that you think. We confess that easily we get it the wrong way around. To help us more and more to think as you do. In your son's name we pray. Amen.